0: All right, everybody out there and listening, Ryan, welcome to episode 39 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back this week with another fantastic show, and we're here in our virtual studio. Myself, your host, Tucker Marahue, and I'm here with our co-host as always, Steve Nassar. What's happening, steve
1: Hey, it is good to be back on the show. We've got some crazy heat going on outside. We talk about a hot housing market, but now it's literally hot with this 100 degree weather we've been having back yeah, to back to back.
0: It's hot, hot, hot. I actually... uh one of our new construction projects. This is a good, I guess, example of why insulation works both on the hot end and the cool end. We had yet to do blow-in insulation on the uh, second story of one of our new construction projects, which is otherwise totally completed. AC's cranking in the house, right? So it's nice, cool downstairs. You go upstairs, same AC, brand new ductwork. It's not like the AC's not getting up there, but because we hadn't done any blow-in insulation yet in the attic, the temperature was like 10 degrees warmer. So that's why you need insulation, not only for the hot, but also to keep it cool. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's hot. It's hot, hot, hot. That's for sure. I think we uh, got close to 100 the last couple of days, and I think we're somewhere in the 90s today as we're sitting here recording, but uh, we've got the AC on, so that's good.
1: I, I knew an agent that was doing an open house over the weekend, and some lady with her kid or two stopped in. She was like, yeah, we're just out driving around. We don't have AC at home, so we're trying to keep cool. We figured you have it here. Do you mind if we look around? And So, yeah, I feel for any that do not have air conditioning in all places, office, home, car, and dart from one quickly to the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you deal with that other than uh, I guess you just smile and nod, right? Instead of saying, uh, move along now. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you smile and nod. So beyond that, uh, I guess before we uh, introduce our guests for this show, what's going on with you this week? Well, it's been a busy
1: couple weeks, actually. I think we took some time off last week. You had some big, exciting events going on here in town. But on the brokerage side, I got out on the golf course for work, of course, and only for work. (laughs) It was actually pretty exciting. It was part of the Yamhill County Association of Realtors. It was in McMinnville. It's their big annual golf event. Sponsored much like what most of the agents here in the Portland metro area are used to with PMAR or the East Metro Area Association. Or um, actually, there's another big one coming up. In fact, I'll mention it here in a second in the Portland area. But so we got out there, we had a foursome, it was really cool. We're supporting our Newburgh office, we're, we're starting our Yamhill County office out of Newburgh. And there was a couple of, of us executives with PPG, a couple of our agents. That was a really fun, neat event to get in there with the community. and. To uh, show that support there, we are working also on another big event, golf event up here that we're going to be a sponsor for. That's with the that's the Driving at Home Golf Tournament. It's Oregon Association of Realtors. It's at Langdon Farm, I think, July twenty first, thir- which is a Thursday. We're a whole sponsor on that, so we've been working behind the scenes as a company on some signage and some booth layouts and so on and so forth. So. For the brokerage side, golf and lots of golf talk there for us. It's
0: that time of year though, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It might have been a little too hot on Friday. It was it was toasty out there, I'll tell <laughs> or, you.
0: Or just too many adult beverages for everybody partaking, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> that happens once in a while as well. So on the broker side, it's been busy. I've got kind of a unique story that's happened here in the last... It Actually, I was contacted by some clients, I want to say now three or four weeks ago, but we just went into contract with them. This last weekend. And the interesting thing about them, I mean, you know, we work with a lot of clients and many fit within the same normal or similar scenario. But this one was a little outside the box. They're moving from the Bay Area. And early on in the phone consultation that I had with them, they informed me that they have a tiny house that they would be plopping into the backyard of a Portland property. Hmm. Um which was an absolute first for me. And these actually do exist. They even sent me pictures of it. It's basically, it's a tiny house. <laughs> I think it's on wheels. And I'm not positive if those wheels, like once you get to a permanent location are mantled or not, but they are so fond of it. and It's their pride and joy. They It's have like a, permanent... a dog
0: or something, right? You, know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you would think. Yeah. I mean, we, we're used to that. That would fit more within the box. Hey, I need a backyard for, for my dog. But No, they needed a backyard for something else, and uh, they're very excited about it. So a big part of our search that we proceeded to have was finding the right property with the right backyard and lot. And I told them right up front, I said, "You got to get with City of Portland. You got to do some due diligence to understand permitting or what's required in this regards." They did that, and we found them a place over the weekend. One of my buyers agents was out with them, and they wrote it up and got it accepted. So. That's one of the unique stories we have going on. Other than that, we've got a lot of listing appointments. I've I've been going to many back-to-back. A lot of them are, you know, we've talked about this a lot here on the show. Many of them are sellers but also buyers, and that's just a big thing that's in their forefront is how am I going to go about that. And so it's just, it really is important for us agents to master the understanding of the fundamentals the way I like to approach it is can you buy first without selling? Cause I think if you can, I just think that is just such a smart way to navigate the process because in reality, if you find the right house and you can make an offer most likely with financing as a part of it, even though some people do have large amounts of cash. And by the time that offer is accepted, you could be quickly moving to have your house on the market. And in, in this environment, If it's priced right and if it's a good house or an average or better house, you could very well have it pending quickly and navigate a rent back period of some sorts so that you move once and possibly aren't even making many payments on that mortgage. And that's assuming that they were going to pay off the mortgage once they sold the house. I had one other unique situation like that here recently, which kind of was a, a neat trick that I encouraged my sellers to use was they had a house with tons of equity in it. They didn't have the down payment, but they could definitely qualify payment wise for a mortgage. So we talked about just them going down to their local credit union or bank and just getting a home equity line of credit against their current house. You have to do that before it's listed. This isn't a strategy in most cases that can work once you've actually been listed because most of those banks want to see you, your house not on the market, A, and B, off the market for a substantial amount of time, sometimes six months, sometimes a year. Forget. It varies, I think, from institution to institution. So what? that's what we did with those clients was they went out, they got a HELOC, they were able to draw on it, they now had their down payment, they qualified for a mortgage, they could find a house first, they could make an offer with no contingencies as soon as it's accepted, we're moving to get their house on the market and and helping them have a seamless transition. Obviously, not everyone can buy first, but when they can, it does work out pretty well for them. I think in this market, that's probably their best case scenario. We know that contingent offers just don't really get much traction, especially in a multiple offer situation on a newly listed house. I mean, I've seen a few contingent offers go through in this environment, but it's usually on a house that's been out there for at least thirty days, maybe even sixty. And we just know we both know those aren't the best houses. So
0: yeah, I agree. I actually saw a situation, not a listing of ours, but a listing that I was kind of watching that I know the agent on. and they uh, actually had a house that um, had sale failed once before to no fault of the actual sellers or their house. Just the buyer's agent didn't do his job properly and didn't make sure buyers were serious before they made an offer. But anyway, point being is that, you know, they're taking an offer now that's lesser than what they would get from the contingent offer because they don't want to have to go through another potential sale fail process that again might happen because the buyer who's contingent, their deal might fall apart for whatever reason. Right. And so it's kind of a domino effect. So yeah, I totally understand that. But I think you're right, man. If you can get um, you know line of credit, if you've got existing equity in your home, be able to utilize that line of credit for a down payment and you can qualify for the purchase of the new house get that new house bought first, then, uh, you know, work on moving your house after we're in a hot market. So, you know, things are going to sell. You just have to be realistic about your price, but that makes you a lot more competitive in an environment where contingent offers are not, uh, you know, they're not welcomed with open arms most of the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, again, it's as the agent, as the advisor to these people, it's so key to be knowledgeable and confident in explaining the different options Helping them figure out which box they fit in. Sometimes they fit in multiple. Maybe they can buy first, but they prefer to sell first. And explain, okay, you can do either. Here's the pros of this one. Here's the pros of that one. Here's the cons of this one. Here's the cons of that one. And then help them make an informed decision by being their knowledge
0: base in that regards. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, and that's really that's part of what your job is, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not just talking about pretty beautiful marketing, which which is important. But in that case, I always say that can almost be a liability in some regards because here you are saying, look how great our marketing is. Look how great we are at selling houses. Well, they're going to look right back at you and go, that's what I'm afraid of. You're going to sell my house too fast and I don't know where to go. So you can't have approach every seller with a one size fits all strategy. That's a great strategy for a seller who's about to leave the area. Obviously, you don't talk about anything to do with the purchase, and it's all about how quick and how much you can sell their house for, but if you approach every seller that way, you're going to find yourself in some tough situations with sellers who that's not their hot
0: button. Yeah, I agree. Well, it sounds like things are uh, moving along, as always. We're getting into the hot season, literally and figuratively here, so uh, (laughs) you know, that's good to hear that you're busy, busy, busy. Yeah, what's up with you? So um, we had a big week, as we talked about. We skipped last week's show. We've got a great guest on this week, though. We'll introduce here in a second to uh, make up for us not having a show last week. But uh, the reason being is because we had our first big event. And so some of you guys know that I have an, a, another podcast that I've done for a couple of years now, two and a half years, that's kind of on the real estate investing side of the business. And so through that podcast, we've built a, a community that... Um, it's a paid for community, but it's a community of of like-minded real estate investors from all over the country, all of which build homes, renovate homes. Uh, It's what they do every day. And so we did our first event for that community where we had people flying in from Boston, Florida, St. Louis, Texas, all over the country. We had tons of people. So this past week was us prepping for the event. Friday and Saturday, we were kind of, you know, we were adult babysitters for two days, along with some doing a lot of teaching, of course. But they all flew in. Friday was a classroom day. We had a nice room at the uh, Crown Plaza there in Lake Oswego, and we did kind of our presentation there. And then Saturday, we went out into the field and we toured a bunch of our rehab projects, some of our new construction projects, one of which is our Nas Road project, which I've talked to you a lot about, Steve. It's you know a multi-million dollar new construction project, and I'm happy to say at the moment we are pending on that. It's not completed yet, uh, which is a good sign for the market. It's California buyers. They seem like great people, but they recognized the same thing I did with the house and the lot is that you know we could have split this lot into two and built two houses, but I wanted to do one, and I felt it would be a really grand, nice house. It's actually a remake of the house that I live in with some improvements, I think, to it. And so they saw that value and we're currently pending. So we're excited to get that wrapped up for them. Yeah, thank you. And we're actually going to walk the property with them this week and just kind of go through kind of a lot of our design selections and things like that. But pretty excited to have some people that are really looking forward to the product that we're going to create there. And it's just a good sign for the market overall. Beyond that, I don't want to keep our guests waiting too long. He's gracious enough to join us here this week. I know he was out and about today and he, he hurried back to the office to get on the show here. So why don't you introduce our guest and we'll go from there.
1: Well, I will. I'll I'll start with a little teaser. So you sold a $2 million house. Did it end up in Luxury Home Magazine by chance?
0: Well, it's not done yet. So (laughs) when it is and we have something worthy of people actually looking at beyond just the framed shell, then yes, it might be something that would be a good place for it.
1: I wonder if they'd let the framed shell picture in there. I'm kidding. I know they wouldn't because that's such a quality piece. Well, that is who our guest is today. We're very honored to have Emil Bonfilio, on the show. Did I say that right, Emil?
2: You said it You said it perfect.
1: Oh, wonderful. For those of our listeners that may not know Emil, he is the founder and owner, I believe, of Luxury Home Magazine. And I'll say a little bit about it, my experience with it. I've been in it a few times, a handful of times over the years. I will tell you, anytime I have a listing north of a million dollars, it's one of my first thoughts. Assuming you know, Assuming it's a quality listing that looks and shows well, I am very quick to call up a meal and say, I've got another one. Let's get this in the magazine. It's in a day and age where print advertising has really suffered. This is a product that I firmly believe in and stand by largely because of what it is. The actual product itself is a coffee table book, plain and simple. In fact, I've got a table here in my office and it's right smack dab in the middle of it. It is just such a beautiful piece. It is fun to look at for anybody, whether you eat, sleep, and breathe real estate like Tucker and I do, or you're just a uh, anyone else out there in the community. I think most people enjoy picking it up, looking at it. They've also grown their online presence, which is also obviously another strong component to advertising in this day and age. So, Emil, let's go right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved with Luxury Home Magazine and then a little bit about the magazine's background, and specifically here in our area.
2: Yeah, and guys, I appreciate the time here, and you know, you said you missed a podcast last week, so I'm going to try and fit in double the information in the same amount of time to uh, give your listeners their full bang for the buck. And one correction there, Steve, I am not the founder of the publication. I think that would do a, a discredit to my mentor, Brad Taylor, who I started in this process very early on with, but He was the founder and uh, someone who's taught me many things, and so I want to make sure I give credit to him for that. So, I started with Luxury Home Magazine in 2004. Uh, It was a very new publication that had been published by another company that had no idea how to run a real estate magazine. And I was very familiar with the real estate industry. I grew up in this industry in the back offices of places like. Lute Snyder and Cronin and Kaplan and Stan Wiley Real Estate. Both my parents were real estate agents. So I had a really strong understanding of the business, also had a marketing background. And so when this opportunity came to uh, start this small magazine in Portland, Oregon, I felt like this was a good opportunity. And we came online in terms of publishing, like I said, in 2002, and I joined in 2004. And that was a great time because the market was really starting to pick up, things were going gangbusters, and it was a product that was really useful in the market. And then, you know, as things changed and the market evolved, we had to evaluate where our position was and what we were doing and how we were doing things and evolve. And I think through that, we ended up coming up with an even stronger product and something that served our clients even better. My role with the company, I kind of serve two roles. I'm the owner and the publisher of the Portland market and then i'm also the senior vice president for sunshine publications which is the franchise which operates the 25 luxury home magazines across the country so we started here in portland but we're now a national company from coast to coast yeah i looked that up on your website
0: you you've got quite a few markets which is pretty cool to see all the places that you guys are at
2: yeah it's exciting you know we get to see great real estate you know we work with the top agents you know not only in this market but across the country And that really allows us to kind of leverage their experience and draw upon the things that they do to be successful and be able to pass that on to people. It's nice to be able to uh, poach some things from other markets that people don't do in your market and be able to share that with your clients. Are there other similar type products
1: out there, Emil. I mean, I, I'd have to think there are some. but
2: well, yeah, there are some. There's no one as large as Luxury Home magazine. We're the largest network of what we call market specific luxury real estate publications. You've got your DuPont registries and your unique homes and magazines like that that cover you know, the entire world basically of luxury properties. But LHM's unique because we only focus on a specific geographic market. And that's really how we build our brand and how we've created our niche: is that we don't try and take the whole pie; we just try and take a piece of the pie. Yeah, I
0: remember back when we were just lowly officers, Steve, Factory Home Magazine, and just it was kind of the who's who back in the. I mean, even back in the day, and you know, obviously I didn't know any of those people. Now we open it up and I'm sure both of us know pretty much everybody that's in there. So it's crazy how things have changed. But yeah, that I remember looking at that long, long ago and it was a, a, a big then as far as being a, a, the most quality piece out there in the market for people to look at properties with.
1: And you know, one thing that you've done so great, Emil, is they're timeless too. And I'm sure it's very purposeful on your part. You don't put a date on them as far as I can tell. And so there's been times where I'll I'll pull one out you know, back in the day, back as you're referencing, Tucker, now you'd be looking through it and you're kind of drooling over these beautiful mansions and, and wonderful penthouses and homes in central Oregon. And for all you know, it's three years old. I mean, it doesn't matter. And and that's what makes it just such a quality piece that lingers
2: around. That, you know, well, you know I think our, s- our goal is to provide value to our clients. And that value can come in a lot of different ways, you know, just because you've got a particular property in Stafford that's on five acres that you advertised with us and sold it, that doesn't mean that if somebody calls on that ad two years later, you can't find them another five-acre parcel in Stafford that you'd be glad to sell them. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, Emil, where is the magazine designed and printed? And tell us a little bit about that process, timelines, etc.
2: Yeah. So, we print our magazine in Southern California. Because we're a large organization, we actually use a printer that has the same identical plants in three different parts of the country, which allows for a perfect simulation of each of our magazines, regardless of where you go. So quality is really important to us. We designed the magazine here in our office in Lake Oswego. And one of the things that that we do is we actually design probably about 75% of the pages that are in our magazine for our advertisers. And the reason that that occurs is because we find that a lot of our clients our busy people, they have a listing that they want to promote, they have a brand that they want to promote, but they don't always have the resources to go about designing those things themselves. And so we have an in-house graphic artist that works with our clients, uh, designs the ads for them, and provides them with a service that a lot of magazines don't do. Many types of newspapers and, uh, and magazines just say, hey, send us your artwork and we'll put it in. But you know, we like to work with our clients because if they don't look good, we don't look good. And so we strive really hard to make sure that that we put out a good product that makes all of us look good.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic magazine. I mean, it's like Steve was mentioning, it's entertaining to look through, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that you guys obviously go for that. I mean, that's that's a big part of the brand that you've tried to build. But, you know, it could be three years old, it could be the latest issue. You know, it's still captivating and grabs your attention with the way that it's set out, which is fantastic.
2: One of our hallmark features is our size. And you know, it's expensive to print a magazine of that size. It's very expensive to mail it, which is why our advertising costs are more than maybe a traditional publication. But, you know, in the, in the world that we live in, like you said earlier, Steve, about the struggles of print media, if you're not doing something different, if you're not trying to stand out, and for us in terms of media that gets direct mail or is on coffee tables, you know, almost every type of publication is eight and a half by 11. So when someone goes and gets the mail, They've got to decide, are they going to keep us or are they going to toss us? So when they're looking at us in the Pottery Barn catalog and everything else that they get in the mail, front gate, you know, what's worth keeping? And we find that our size allows us to have that longer shelf life. I couldn't agree with you more, Emil. I think
1: you may or may not know, but I'm very much into marketing. I eat, sleep and breathe it. And, you know, I will always challenge those people who say, oh, print marketing is dead. It's gone. It's it's yesterday. Everything is online and I make no mistake. The online component is huge and there is so much to that. And if you have your head in the sand and aren't aggressively looking there and innovating there, then there's, you're going to be left behind. But I think the right print pieces are here forever. And like you said, it's those specialty pieces. The analogy I've often used in this regards is that of a horse, and here's where I'm going with that. If we were to get back in a little time machine and go back say 150, 200 years ago, how cool is a horse? They're everywhere. You look down Main Street, there's hundreds of them. It's really not a specialty, it's not a novelty. But flash forward to today and what young girl doesn't want a horse? What child or what person isn't intrigued when there's a horse around because they become they become a rare commodity, they become something that's very specialty, very unique and I think print is going to be the same way. You can't do it the same way as it was done in the past. But when you have those quality pieces at your listings and with this magazine, it's tangible. You can touch it. You can smell it. People keep it. And it's not as easily deleted and forgotten as an email or you know a website. So there definitely is a place for it. And, and you guys have really led the charge as an exemplary way of, of
2: doing so. Well I think that that has to do what we've seen is the success of publications in a digital age has to do with being a niche and a specialty product. So whether that's a, a car magazine, an architecture magazine, a luxury real estate magazine or you know cat fancy as, as long as you're focusing on a specific niche then that's what's important. And then as long as you're trying to reach and satisfy that audience, you combine those two things and, and then you have a successful publication, you know, for us as great as it is to print our magazine, if we're not distributing it in the right areas and getting it in front of the right people, then all we've done is print something beautiful and it's not effective. So, you know, we try really hard to put our magazine in front of people that can afford to make a high end purchase. And, you know, in an area like Portland, Oregon, Southwest Washington and Bend, that's very difficult because we live in a city where, Wealth is very intermixed amongst the population. There's not the haves and the have-nots, you know. You can live in Lake Oswego and have a a $2 million house next to a $400,000 house. And so finding outlets to distribute the magazine so that those people come across them is very challenging, but it's also very rewarding when you find those great spots where you move a ton of magazines.
0: Hey, Steve, I think you have a a subscription to Cat Fancy, don't you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely
1: any statistics for us, Emil, on distribution and and how the the magazine is getting out there in general beyond the real estate
2: community? We we print 25,000 copies of our magazine every issue, which is six times a year. And our largest form of distribution is through direct mail. And so we direct mail 17,000 copies of the magazine every issue to people in Northwest Oregon and Southwest Washington that live in a home valued at $800,000 or more. We also add every listing that's in the MLS for sale over $900,000 to our mailing list if they're not already on there. We then go and we take about 3,500 magazines and we distribute these in upscale venues, luxury car dealerships, country clubs, private airports, high-end hotels and salons. We've got some outdoor distribution racks um, in very high-end locations, South Waterfront, Pearl District, Lake Oswego, West Lynn. And then we also do some distribution to corporate relocation, as well as some of our sister publications like Seattle and San Francisco and Silicon Valley, which are always sending their people to beautiful Oregon. Gotcha. So wow, you, actually, some... you target
0: people then that have $800,000 homes or greater, and you actually direct mail them a copy each, each time you print.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's our largest form of distribution. But we okay. recognize that it can be a challenge to identify all those homes. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why we make sure that You know, we're going to put the magazine in other places where if you're someone with money that spends money, you're going to come across it in that uh, in that two month period. Yeah, I've seen it a lot in Lake
0: Oswego as well. Kind of uh, a number of shopping centers around there. Obviously, I live in Lake Oswego, but um, I actually pulled one the other day as I was at Starbucks getting uh, getting something to drink. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the point. That's really impressive, Emil. I got to tell you, that's such a methodical and purposeful distribution. I mean, you've got a formula, you've obviously given it a lot of thought, and you execute on it. So kudos to you. That's just fantastic. Let's talk a little bit more about the content of the magazine. So what price do you define as a luxury home for the magazine? And do you turn away requests for people that want to enter the magazine and either the price point or the appearance of the home doesn't fit? And feel free to give some examples with
2: or without names and addresses. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely protect the names or change <laughs> the names to protect the innocent here. But uh, actually, I should say to protect the guilty. You know, defining luxury is very subjective, especially in an area where luxury varies based on your location. It's easy to use the example of Lake Oswego, but you can take a, a house that's in Gresham, Oregon, right, on five acres you know, 4,000 square feet that might be for sale for $650,000, $700,000. You put that in Lake Oswego, and it's a $1.5 million home. And so it's hard to define luxury by price. What we try and do in filtering products that come into our magazine is we try and think about our audience and think, okay, what's the value that having this property in the magazine brings? You know, is there someone out there who lives in A $1 million, $2 million home that's maybe looking to downsize into something that's modest but still luxurious. Maybe that is a $700,000 house in Westlake. Maybe that is a condo in the pearl that's only two bedrooms. What we try and do is just try and present options. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is that in real estate, that everybody's always on this constant ascension to build and buy bigger homes. Many people have experience that for the period in their life and then decide, you know what, I don't need a 7,000 square foot home anymore. I'm ready to go smaller. I don't need a large yard. I'm ready for something low maintenance so I can go spend time at my second home. So we just try and really give a wide range of options. And, you know, I mean, I generally think usually if something's maybe, you know, $600,000 or below it, it takes a bit of a stretch before we put that in there at the same time, you know, we had Brasada ranch, I ran a bunch of um, ranch cabins in our magazine. They were $350,000, and they sold four of them from one issue of our magazine from people that were buying them for second homes. So, you know, as long as it's a good fit for our audience, price becomes less subjective. Have you had entries? I'm I'm sure you have
1: where you said, hey, thank you so much, but I just don't think we're going to put this in this issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, I had a person that was just selling me on the value of this home how great it was! How wonderful it was! And then come to find out, it was a triple wide. And, um, <laughs> and it, I hey, mean, but it had
0: an open floor plan, you it know. Was a very
2: <laughs> open floor plan. You know, if if you didn't like where the house was situated on the lot, you could move it. Um, so. <laughs> they must have taken the license plate off though before they called you, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people actually call and ask if they could put one of their motor coaches in. You know, it was a seven hundred thousand dollar bus. It was very impressive. The top came up and sides popped out and went from, you know, 400 square feet to almost 900 square feet. And, you know, just didn't necessarily feel like the right fit, but you might need a 30 year mortgage to pay for it. So, wow. Interesting. Let's talk about the market in general as
1: as you from your unique vantage point and perspective are able to speak to. I mean, based on your observations with, and we've had, as you may have noted, we've had a couple great high-end agents that really specialize in that market. And we've been asking these questions to a few people recently, but I'd like to get your take on it. Based on your observations with regards to homes entered and length of time advertised, how do you feel the, the luxury home market in our area is doing?
2: Well, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, and yeah, I've heard a couple of your podcasts with, you know, some of our best clients. And I think that I would do a, a disservice trying to say that I know more about the market than they do. But I definitely think I'd give a, a different perspective. And I think what I see is that, you know, the market is in a good position. When you see people listing homes and buying homes at the rate that they're moving, that's a good sign. What always worries me in the high end market is that when there starts to be a surplus of those properties that come along, there's only so many people that can afford to buy a million and a half, two million dollar home. There's not necessarily enough employment here in the area to support those kind of properties. Now, a lot of those people are coming from California, and, and I can appreciate that. And that is what's fueling the market a little bit. But I think what's interesting is that you're starting to see some of the trophy properties coming for sale, which I find really interesting. You know, last year you had the CEO of Precision Cast Parts list his property for, you know, $13 million. There's another property that's coming on the market which I can't disclose but it's one of probably the top 5 properties in the metro area that's coming on an exclusive home north of 8 million dollars. You know, these are the the properties that kind of come along, you know, once in a generation and it's interesting to see these coming up with more frequency. It makes me feel that people that are buying luxury homes not only feel confident that they can find a buyer for their product but that they can also find something out there that's a suitable replacement. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I,
0: I saw that home. Actually, um, the uh, CEO of Precision Cast Parts and his wife looked at our Street of Dreams home a few years back, and they had talked about how grand their house was. And I hadn't seen pictures until Justin listed it. Of course, it was in your magazine, but hell of a house, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, my uh, cousin was, the I think, the foreman for Shelburne Homes when they built that, and he said it's the most impressive building that he's ever built. Yeah, it, it looked like it.
1: Tucker, is that the CEO that had to have the private tour? <laughs>
0: That is him. That's that we him. all thought it might have been Terry Stotts, but no, no, it was just the CEO of Precision Cashparts. Although nowadays, with uh, what's going on in that neighborhood around there, he might want private tours of things and security. But you know, that's a whole other topic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did see the advertising and marketing for his house, the thirteen million dollar one. Phenomenal, phenomenal property, right there on the river. Just everything going for it. There was, yeah, there was nothing wrong with that house. Not so, at all. um. So, you, would you acknowledge then, Emil, that the trend is that you're seeing more homes come to market in the last year or
2: two in the higher end? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case. You know, like, the, for example, the size of our magazine has always been driven by the inventory in the market. You know, as we get agents that come to us that have high end listings, we've always had our core group that we work with. And even when the market was at its worst, they sort of sustained us and and kept the magazine moving. And, you know, now we see a lot of people who are kind of coming out of nowhere, which to me is always a sign. I think it's a good sign that there's a lot of homes that are for sale and that those homes are also being spread out amongst lots of agents. I think it's a dangerous situation when all of a sudden you start to get, you know, a handful of agents that are listing 30, 40 high-end properties at a given time because it shows that the market is concerned. And so they're, they're leaning more towards those really specialized experts to sell their properties as opposed to other capable agents that can still represent those properties and give them good service. So I feel like the market's in a in a good spot. You know, I read an article the other day talking about how, you know, the Silicon Valley luxury home market was just crashing it in the dumps because in 2014 their average days on market was eight days and now they've gone to 14. So <laughs> just <laughs> horrific. Just you know? you know first world problems there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Your magazine covers a pretty large area. I know you have Southwest Washington. I know you also have Central Oregon. I believe you also have the coast. What are you seeing as far as trends in those various areas? I'm hearing lots of good things about the Bend market. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, Bend is great. It's got its new nickname, which is Bendifornia, because it is quickly becoming the California hotspot. You know, The building that's going on over there is amazing. You had all of these defunct subdivisions and golf course properties, which sat vacant for seven, eight years and just kind of dwindled as bank owned messes. And now you go into places like Tetherow and there's construction just going on like crazy, you know, new projects that are starting to pop up. And and that's a good sign. People are catching on that Oregon's a great place. And, you know, for those of us that have been here for a while, it's a it's a difficult change to kind of see. But I think we all are going to benefit from that. And so, especially us in the real estate industry, that's a good thing. I think what's interesting, though, where I'm seeing some more growth is, you know, I'm actually seeing a movement away from people wanting to live in, you know, kind of the, the large acreage properties and people that are kind of moving a lot towards, you know, the Westside, Hillsboro Bethany area, looking for those luxury properties. As more and more tech comes up here to the, you know, Silicon Forest there's definitely a bit of a shift to where a lot of those high-end homes are being built and purchased. And so I think that's an interesting trend to kind of watch a little bit.
1: Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions is where are you starting to see some of the new luxury homes pop up? That's that's really, really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense too.
2: Yeah. And you know, again, one of the things that still baffles me though, and again, I think it's just from growing up here is when I see the redevelopment happening in parts of Portland, where you see these small homes that are On very small lots, you know, places in North and Northeast Portland that are going for upwards of a million dollars. That's a surprise to me. But, you know, if you're someone who's coming from San Francisco and you're used to that sort of lifestyle or you're coming from New York, the home's spacious and it's a bargain. So I can see where that's uh, happening. It surprises me, but I don't think it's anything to be worried about.
0: Yeah, it's just making use of what we have as far as buildable dirt, you know, and trying to put as much of a, a family style home on it as you can.
2: Yeah. I mean, as long as that urban growth boundary, you know, remains a noose around the city, infill is just going to be a fact of life and we just have to embrace it and, you know, allow for the planning commissions and the builders to work together to create beautiful properties. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, another question for you,
1: Emil. What percentage of the luxury home market do you feel is dominated by the same players and what percentage is the onesie twosie agents out there? And you, you spoke on this a little bit, but Obviously there are some key players that really embrace that market and that's really all they do. And they would it would probably be safe to say they're your bread and butter and your base, but speak to that a little bit for us.
2: Yeah, I mean so you know you have for us what's interesting is about 50% of our business comes from within 5 miles of our office here in Lake Oswego. And that's a very important segment of the market because those high-end agents that are kind of the all-stars of the real estate industry, they're really important because what they do is they drive and push the other agents to maybe go to a level that they weren't normally comfortable with. And that's good because it gives other agents the opportunity to experience what it's like to market a high-end property in a way that they probably wouldn't before. But because of relationships and connections and for whatever reason, they've ended up with this listing that sometimes they don't know what to do with. What's been really neat for me to see is over the years now to watch kind of the careers and trajectory of certain agents change. I can think of a couple. I, well, one agent in particular from uh, Southwest Washington, Lori Anderson Benson, REMAX agent. You know, She started in our magazine probably nine years ago with just a half page. This issue or last issue, she took six pages and the cover, and it's been neat to see her progress. And so, I think what you see is as, as the guard changes and people like, you know, Barbara Sue Seal are no longer in the industry and, and new names come up and fill those spots. And, you know, where Christy Harnish is kind of taking a backseat to Justin Harnish and, you know, people come in and, and people move. There's opportunities to grow. And to me, it's just about what agents want to go out there and, and capture that business. You know, luxury homes are not the easiest properties to sell, as you know, Steve and Tucker. They cost a lot of money to market. There are a lot longer days on market. And so promoting them is not for the faint of heart. You know, if you're trying to get a quick paycheck, people would probably rather sell three $400,000 homes than one $1.2 million home.
0: You know, and I think there's, there's one caveat to that, and that's if a company named TTM Development Company builds it and it hasn't been lived in yet, then they become rather easy to sell.
2: That's true. And you know what? I'm happy to hear that you sold that listing on NOS. I drove past it the other day. My good friends live right across the street from it. And I love the design of it. And so I'm I'm glad to hear that you sold that.
0: Yeah, we actually, when we did our Street of Dreams home too, we were the only spec on the street as well. And I've learned a lot about the luxury market over the last number of years as well, but I will say you're right. It is in general, it's it's much more difficult to sell a luxury home. And we talked to Justin Harnish about this as well, you know, talking about trying to set expectations for your clients, right? They see the, the $300,000 Southeast listing gets 20 offers. Why doesn't my $1.2 million home get 20 offers, right? They, it's not universal throughout the market. So you definitely have to kind of set expectations as far as that goes. But th- there is a difference. There definitely is. And especially, you know, if people live in them and they have their stuff in them, it just it takes time to sell those types of products, especially in this market.
1: So and, and it's much harder to leverage yourself too on those
0: properties. When we
1: spoke with Terry Sprague on this show as well, I mean, he acknowledged that he he goes to every one of those agent accompanied showings. And so for a guy like myself with a team of 12 people and running a large brokerage as well. It's a much bigger commitment when you really go after that market. And those people who inherently, and they've deserved that right, are much more higher maintenance. They're used to getting their way. That's that clientele. They're used to when they call, you pick up. They don't get your receptionist and she fields it and helps them. So I fully agree with it. It's it's kind of something that people have to, you can set up a business. And model for that. You can set one up for the much more production, higher quantity of the mid sized or mid priced properties and still cater to a few here and there. And that's kind of a little bit more what I've done along the way. But yeah, it is, you know, I think in all fairness, I think people from the outside, it seems so glamorous to go into that luxury home market. And why not? I mean, you're in and out of these beautiful homes day in and day out, and there's these bravo tv shows that make it look so wonderful and glamorous to put it simply but there's a lot more to it behind the scenes that i think people don't quite appreciate with days on market and some of the challenges
0: and and being readily available for all those showings every single show i mean you got to be 24 7 you know for a lot of those types of clients and then of course a lot of them you know they expect the kind of marketing that comes with a luxury home magazine and things like that because that's what that game is you know and rightly so in a lot of cases
2: One of the things that that I find really shocking is um, the transparency as we speak with different agents about properties. I can't tell you how many people I talk to when I talk about advertising say, hey, I would absolutely love to, but I'm completely broke. And I'm just trying to sell this house so that I can pay some bills and kind of get my business moving. And I ask them, I say, do the people who hired you know this? And they go, oh, are you kidding me? I'd never tell them that. And I guess that to me is the difference when You know, you're working with a real professional that has some experience versus, you know, your friend that happens to be on the neighborhood organization with you and you just have them list your house because they've got their license. There's definitely value in using somebody that is experienced and knows how to market one of these properties. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I'm not even an
1: agent. (laughs) And there's so many less of those properties and so many less buyers in that buyer pool. It's always interesting. I think about it this way. You know, The most profitable car companies are not Lamborghini and Ferrari. It's Volkswagen and Toyota, the, the ones that are doing the, the highest volume. So it's definitely something and for the agents out there. I encourage them, You know, really analyze. If that's the market you want to go after, sit back and really look at it and identify what it is about that that you want. And, and then go after it, but do it in the right way. And you go into it eyes wide open with some of the challenges and understandings of those challenges as well
0: yeah it's it's a different business both on the agent front and as well as on the builder front uh, you know creating homes like that of course we sell them to the first time buyer but you know that obviously then they sell again and they sell again and they sell again but You're right, Steve. It's a totally different business, you know, if that's what you're going to focus on exclusively as an agent. And it's a totally different business if that's what you're going to focus on exclusively or, you know, almost exclusively as a builder, which we do. It's much different than banging out 50 homes a year in Happy Valley or something like that, or, you know, in Oregon City. Way, way different. And so it's just a different business all around, but in a good way, I think, in a lot of ways and and in some challenging ways in others. But we don't want to keep our guests for too much longer here. So, Steve, why don't you wrap up? telling our, our listeners how they might be able to get a hold of him if they want to uh, not only uh, check out the publication, but maybe utilize it to uh, market some homes or advertise some homes that they might have coming up for list.
1: Yeah. And we'll put this in the show notes, Emil, but yeah, tell our listeners the best way to get a hold of you, whether it's be a website, phone number, so that when they have a high-end listing, they can absolutely get it in the one of the highest quality advertising pieces in our area. Yeah, I mean, your best bet
2: is to go to our website, luxuryhomemagazine.com. It's the online portal for all 25 of our markets. You can view digital magazines from everywhere from Hawaii to Washington, D.C., to Texas, to North Carolina on there. Our contact information is on there. And so if that's a place where you're interested to look at amazing properties, uh, we suggest you visit hang hangout. And you can also look us up on our different social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. cetera. I love looking at Luxury Home Magazine. I check
0: it out every single month, and uh, I'm sure Steve does the same. And hopefully, uh, a lot of our listeners here that maybe haven't in the past will go check it out. And I'm sure those that already do will continue to.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, you guys, I appreciate your time. Love listening to the show, and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate it. All right, guys, this wraps up episode 39. We'll see you guys next week for the Big Four O.